this song. You know, you don't really hear this song very often on the radio anymore. And for those of you who don't know, this song is uh, Paula Abdul's Rush Rush. You don't really hear this song on the radio anymore. And maybe you do. I mean, I don't know. I don't. Guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't really listen to the radio a whole lot. So I'm probably not going to be the guy to tell you, you know, that, oh, the radio sucks. You know, everything they play these days is just fucking horrible. You know, I'm not the guy to say, but anyway, none of that's really the point. The point is, I at least haven't heard this song on the radio in a long time, but I don't listen to a whole lot of radio, so what's it worth? Anyway, Rush Rush. Basically, you know, this song came out when I was in the fifth grade, and I guess my clearest memory of this song is when when I was in the fifth grade, you know, like towards the end of the year, we had to do a talent show and so all of the children whether you fucking wanted to or not basically had to participate in this talent show even if your talents really weren't necessarily of they're not really in the mode of performance or something like that you still had to do some kind of a fucking performance right which i thought was stupid and there was this girl who had just she showed up pretty late in the year she was a new girl right uh moved uh, to the school relatively late in the year and Maggie her name was Maggie and I guess her talents they didn't really lend themselves to performance either so I guess she decided that you know what she was going to do is just it was more than just a lip sync as I remember I mean it was a sort of a cosplay kind of a thing where she actually tried to somewhat look like Paula Abdul and I don't know why and I'm not saying that you know just as a casual turn of phrase I mean I fucking sincerely don't know why but there was something about Maggie that just kind of captured my interest like right from day one I wasn't the kind that just had crushes on everybody and everybody is interesting and all of that I really that was never really my attitude. I mean, I liked some people, really didn't like others, and there was no real rhyme or reason to it. But there was something about her. I don't know why, but I just found her very captivating, you know? I'm not saying it makes sense, I'm just saying that's the way that it worked out, right? So every time I hear this song, Rush Rush, I always think about Maggie. And she actually looked kind of scared because, you know, here she was. She was a new kid. She didn't really know anybody. She was doing something she clearly did not want to do. And she was trying to do her best with it. And I don't know. I mean, it's just like then as now, that really impressed me, you know, because, I mean, I knew me and the kind of kid that I was, especially back then. And if I'd, like, if I'd been in her position, if I'd moved to... uh some other town and had to start up in some new school and they wanted me to do something, I'd tell them, go fuck themselves. I'm not doing this. And she didn't do it. She actually gave it her best effort. So, interesting. Anyway, so, hello and welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing right now, I'm basically working my way through a mega series. This is actually part one of said mega series. And the idea here is I talk so much about comics. I love comics. And what ends up happening, at least sometimes, is I tend to talk about comics that are most inside of my wheelhouse. And so as a result, maybe my podcast isn't really as diversified as it might be. And so what I decided to do I'm going to focus on not just comics, but specifically something that's going to require me to talk about more than just the obvious comics. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, you know, basically uh, commit to being a little, slightly more diversified than I typically am on this show, if I'm going to do that, why don't I just 
pick a month out of the calendar and just kind of run with that. So that's what I did. I settled on the on the 1990s just kind of as a decade, and then I thought, well, what's a year in comics that tends to get a lot of shit from a lot of people on the one hand, but is also very much beloved by an entirely different group of people? Well, 1991. That seems to be a love it or a love it or leave it type of type of year, at least when it comes to comics, you know. There are people who look back really fondly on 1991 as a year in comics. And there are others that perhaps could take or leave it, you know? So I thought, well, that's the year I'm going to go with. And then I thought, well, let's make things even more fun. And let's focus on just one month from 1991. Okay, which month? Well, I thought it makes sense to start at the beginning. So this mega series is going to be all about January 1991. If a comic book has January 1991 as the cover date, which has nothing really to do with the release date when you think about it, but if January of 1991 is the cover date, yeah, sure, fuck it, I'll talk about it. Why not? And so it is, I found myself having fallen, once again, ass backwards into a brand new six-episode mega-series. And as I say, the idea is to talk about comics that were, again, not released in January of 1991, but which bear the cover date, January of 1991. And then I thought, well, you know what, if I'm doing this, and this is where my logic sort of breaks down a little bit, I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, why don't I put people in a real 1990s type of frame of mind and just throw in a couple of songs that were popular on the music charts specifically in January of 1991. So, of course, the logical problem here is that a lot of these comics would have been released right around November of 1991. So, the Billboard charts from January, or sorry, November of 1990, not November of 1991, but a lot of these comics would have been released in November of 1990, so the Billboard charts of 1991 will have only varying degrees of relevance. But you know what? Fuck it. Nothing's perfect. So you're going to take what, you're, what you can get, and you're going to like it. If it sounds like I only just now realized the conflict and all of that, well, that would be because I only just now realized the conflict and all of that. So, hmm. Anyway, today's comic because I didn't want to go too far off the reservation, at least to start with. Today's comic is going to be Superman number 51. Now, guys, I bought this comic when it was brand new on the spinner racks. And <clears throat> for those of you in Rio, Texas, a spinner rack is this antiquated device which were used to display comics way back in the day when you could actually go into places like Walden Books or uh, toy stores, gas stations, places like that, and fucking you could, you could actually see comics on sale there, and typically they would put them in these spinner racks, and that's where you'd find them. So anyway, that's sort of the background there, but... I bought this comic when it was brand new on these spinner racks, and I have to tell you, you know, this was a comic about which I I knew I needed to buy just to kind of keep up with my Superman collection, but guys, I'm not going to bullshit any of you. I had very little real enthusiasm for this comic, you know? I wasn't just, I guess, chomping at the bit, or is it champing? Champing at the bit? Chomping at the bit or champing at the bit, fucking I don't know, uh, to pick this comic up. I'm, I, You know, this was just not something I was in great anticipation of. You know, I was basically... Sometimes whenever, whenever you're collecting comics, you pick up a comic not because you care about it, but because it's B. You start it off at A, and you can't wait to get to C, but before you can get to C, fucking you gotta go to B, Right? And this is especially true of, of Superman comics of this vintage, because this, this particular comic is auspicious for being the very first 
of the triangle numbered Superman comics ever, right? Basically, the Superman titles, really, they'd always been this way, where they'd been very deeply entwined with one another. You know, goings-on in action comics would have ramifications on the adventures of Superman, which would in turn carry over to adjectiveless Superman, which doesn't really make tons of sense, but fuck it. That's what, I ca- that's what I'm calling it, and that's what we're going to go with. So these comics already related very heavily to one another, and that was true starting literally from the reboot that John Byrne launched back in 1986, but as time had gone on, these ties had gotten deeper and deeper and deeper, and the only thing that I can figure is the editorial staff were getting virtually inundated with uh, letters and mail and stuff, people basically asking, can you figure out some sort of easy way for me to just look at the covers and figure out the order that I'm supposed to read all of this stuff in? And when you think about it, well, that's a perfectly reasonable request. And so somebody basically devised the idea of putting a triangle number on the cover of all of these comics. The idea being any dimwit that looks at these covers will know the order that these are supposed to be read in based on the number. So as it goes for Superman number 51, the triangle number, or actually the triangle year, is 1991. The number is 1. So this would be the first comic from this year related to Superman that you're supposed to read. And then the next comic, Triangle 1991 Triangle Number 2, would be The Adventures of Superman Number 474, because that takes place after Superman Number 51. After that comes Action Comics Number 661, which is going to be 1991 Triangle Number 3, so on and so on and so on, right? That's the way that it's supposed to be. So, and it was a handy little system, too. Uh, this was, there were times when. I could, I was able to collect Superman comics. I was able to get to the comic book store or I was able to go to the supermarket or I was able to go to Walden Books or just friggin' whatever. And so I would simply buy the Superman comics that they had available. And so the triangle number didn't really matter very much to me at this time simply because my collecting was catch as catch can. Whereas people who were, I guess, more systematic by which I mean, you know, teenagers and adults, anyone else, basically, who had uh, money and freedom of mobility, well, they could just pick up batches of Superman comics, and then based on the, the numbers on the cover, that determined the order in which this stuff got read. And so I have to assume this was successful for everybody who is not Magnus. Such is life. So, anyway... That was kind of the baggage, like I say, that I was coming into all of this with. You know, I didn't care about this comic book before picking it up. As I say, to me, it was just a means to an end. Only this and nothing more. But having read it, this was a really good comic. And this is one of those, one of those issues that it, it's, a, it's aged, I think, incredibly well. Now, guys, I'm not going to lie to you. A great big part of that is probably due at least somewhat, to nostalgia. And then also comparisons, you know, because, you know, there was a point when, you know, the Superman titles just sucked. You know, you had all of this, you know, following all of this nonsense going on with Infinite Crisis, which by itself is not a bad story, but what that, what Infinite Crisis meant to Superman going forward, not so good. And then, the actual stories that started coming out, not necessarily related to continuity issues, which is its own miasma, but, you know, the actual stories that were coming out really weren't much better for the most part. And it kind of led to this, I almost want to call it sort of like a fanboy temper tantrum where I just said, no, damn it, I want to read the Burn Age Superman. That's my guy. That's the one that I want to read. And so... It basically led to me going on this sort of lengthy reading project where I just, I think I just picked 1989 as just kind of a 
random starting point. Basically, that moment when Superman came back to Earth following the Exile storyline and then went right on through to the end of Funeral for a Friend and Superman number 77. And I thought, you know what? That is a damned good run. You know, that that run of Superman following Exile and then ending with Funeral for a Friend, that's just, that's some great stuff. And I, to this day, I kind of regard that post-Exile, pre-Reign of the Superman, uh, Superman and just that that sort of era... That may very well be my all-time favorite era of Superman ever. You know, my absolute favorite. And then when I got to this issue, which is to say Superman number 51, I read this, and we are very far along now into Jerry Ordway as a sort of an auteur storyteller. And uh, basically him... This is Jerry Ordway. He is very... I shouldn't say very, but he is definitely more comfortable now as a writer than he might have been when he first started up. And so I would say it it's probably fair to say that Jerry Ordway, as a Superman creator, was virtually firing on all cylinders. And he had very few missteps, if any, during this entire stretch of comics, at least in my opinion. And... For as good as Jerry Ordway is at this time, just sort of as a general kind of benchmark, I still think that Superman number 51, it's still a step above his usual level, right? Which is already, I mean, guys, we've already set the bar pretty high there, you know? So anyway, uh, I think that's enough, at least for now, that's probably enough gushing. Uh, but just to finally get into the issue proper, this is Superman number 51. Cover date, as I've said, is January 1991. On sale date is November 20th, 1990. Cover price is $1. Editor is Mike Harlan. Writer and penciler is Jerry Ordway. Inker is Dennis Yankee, I guess is how you pronounce it. Letterer is John Costanza. Colorist is Glenn Whitmore. Story summary is as follows. Superman saves workers from a LexCorp nuclear accident. He muses to himself that, that this sort of thing might very well have happened back when Lex Luthor was around. But the difference here is that Lex would never have allowed himself to get caught in the first place. Meanwhile, at Metropolis International Airport, Mr. Z arrives in town, does a few Jedi mind tricks on some people, and then sneaks his way into somebody else's reserved limo. During the ride to downtown Metropolis, he muses to himself over how long it's been since his last visit to the city. Fifty years? A hundred years? Who can keep up? Elsewhere in the city, Jose Delgado buys a lotto ticket. And subsequently loses it when he comes across what's left of some wannabe street thugs who have attacked Mr. Z. Mr. Z kills one of them and then flees the scene before the police can arrive and ask too many questions about just what the hell happened here anyway. Jose's lotto ticket gets found by Bibbo. So, at least there's that, right? Meanwhile, at the Daily Planet, Perry White announces that he's going to be temporarily stepping down as the EIC at the planet. As a replacement... During his leave of absence, he announces that Sam Foswell will be his, say it with me, temporary replacement. That temporary part is kind of important, people, for future issues, but we're not going to be getting into that, at least in this episode. So, Mr. Z chooses that moment to, telepo to bleh, telepathically contact Clark Kent. He, which is to say Mr. Z announces that he's pleased to once again make Superman's acquaintance. He then says that if that sounds interesting to Superman, Superman should swing by the Allen Auditorium at the Museum of Modern History. The strain of this telepathic communication is too much, and Clark keels over. Once he finally comes to and is talking a little bit more, Perry kicks Clark out of the planet, telling him to go home and get some rest. Clark uses that as an opportune moment to switch to Superman and then zoom over to the museum. The guard in front of the place will only allow Superman inside, and there, Superman meets Mr. Z for the first time. 
Mr. Z then shows Superman pictures of a train crash and blames Superman for it. Superman doesn't know just what the fuck's going on here since, number one, he's never met Mr. Z before, and number two, that picture was taken, dur taken during World War II, and back in those days, Superman wasn't much more than a cell swimming around Jor-El's test tube. Mr. Z, though, doesn't want to hear it, and before Superman can point any of this out, Mr. Z imprisons Superman's soul inside the gemstone on his cane. The problem here is Superman's an alien. And that magical gem wasn't really designed to imprison aliens. Superman discovers that he can will the stone to break. The process of doing so frees all the other souls that have been imprisoned in the gemstone, which in turn allows them to die and go on to whatever reward is waiting for them in the afterlife. That's the good news. The not-so-good news is the process also results in, a, in an explosion which seems to kill Mr. Z as he's forced backwards onto a soldier's bayonet from a World War I display. Being as he's Mr. Z, though, he speedily recovers, escapes from the morgue, and then leaves for Saudi Arabia. The end. So... What did I think? Well, guys, as I say, originally I was not looking forward to this issue when it first came out. And, I, and guys, I only picked it up because it's the next chapter in the story, you know? But I, I didn't have any personal investment in this. Now, I don't... I've said that before, but I don't want this to be misunderstood. I was a Jerry Ordway fanboy, even as a kid, Okay. Having said that, it's it's kind of hard to put it into words, but guys, I was only 10 years old, and, you know, these days, certain comics creators, Jerry Ordway is among them, in fact, certain comics creators have credibility with me. Does that make sense? Take Mark Wade, for example. I'm not the kind of collector that just follows a creator from one title to another title to another title. But if I were that type of comic book reader, I would follow Mark Wade. you know? I truly don't think that I've ever read a Mark Wade comic, finished it, and then said, man, that's a real piece of shit, you know? That's what I mean, all right? I, I think I'm at a point in my comics fandom when I can pretty much blindly buy a comic book by Jerry Ordway or by Mark Wade or by whoever and have a reasonable degree of confidence that I'm going to enjoy that book, right? That's now. Back when I was a kid, though, that didn't really exist, you know, I mean, the fact that I liked the last Jerry Ordway issue or the last Dan Jurgens issue, that said nothing about my degree of anticipation or anything else for the next issue. You know, everything, I'm not exaggerating, everything was strictly case by case with me back when I was a kid. And such was the case here, you know. I kind of needed to be talked, well, not talked in, but I kind of needed to psych myself out a little bit to pick up this issue, right? I was at Walden Books, and I was picking up a bunch of other shit, and I almost, I say this to my shame, <clears throat> I say this to my shame, you understand, but I almost just left this this issue behind on the stands just because the blurb that I'd read about Superman number 51, it didn't really do anything for me. And the cover, yeah, I'll admit, it's kind of interesting. You know, you have miniaturized Superman trapped inside some old guy's gemstone on his cane and just what the hell's going on with that. But I don't know. I almost left this on the shelf. But my dad saw it and said, hey, uh, you, you forgot about this one. This one's not in that stack of comics that you got. You want this? Yeah, sure. Throw it in. And so 
I, you know, got home and I started sorting through my loot and I thought, look, I'm probably not going to enjoy this issue. So I'm just going to read this one first, get it over with, and then I can move on to my other stuff here, right? And that's pretty much how I did it. Guys, I got to tell you, by the time I finished this comic, I was up for the game in a big, big way. And honestly, I mean, I might have wanted a little bit more of a pitched confrontation between Superman and Mr. Z. And that was really one of the few sort of quibbles that I would have had about it back then. Now, today, I recognize the fact that Jerry Ordway is basically setting up really a lot of different plot points that are going to be playing out in future issues. And so we're not meant to get all of the answers to everything here. Stuff is meant to spin out of this, and that's the whole point. It's supposed to basically keep you coming back week after week after week, you know, and you're picking this stuff up. And that's why we don't really get very much explanation of what's going on with Mr. Z or what happened in World War II or what really caused that train crash or why does Mr. Z think that he's met Superman before or, or you know, what's going on with, Bi uh, not Bibbo, well, him too, I guess, but what's going on with Jose's lotto ticket? Now, I guess, Bibbo's ticket. You know, what's happening with that? You know, what's going on with um, Jose and Cat? You know, what's going to happen there? What about this Foswell guy? You know, that that stuff that I didn't... It's like I understood it when I was a kid, but I just didn't really, I guess, grasp it as a kid. You know, does that make sense? You know, so the fact that there wasn't as much of a uh, of a big epic confrontation between Superman and Miss and uh, Mister Z, they only really have like like two pages to one another, and then that's it. After that, I mean, they spend the other twenty pages of this story separated from one another by some means or another. So that's that. But anyway, to start with the cover, though, I will admit that, yes, this is a very... This, I, I think, is... Even when I was a kid, I would have told you that this is a very powerful cover, you know? Because it's meant to ask, how the hell is this even possible? You know, Superman getting trapped inside of what looks to be just a, a, glass, end, <clears throat> a glass end piece on some guy's cane, you know? How's that even possible? So... Kudos both for simplicity, but also for for how eye-catching this cover is. Getting into the story proper, though, right here on page one, it basically starts off in media res where Superman is... He's basically in the middle of a rescue, you know? And it's clear that there's a nuclear meltdown of some kind that's going on that uh, captured... <clears throat> I really don't know why my throat is so dry all of a sudden, so I'm just going to get a sip off of my Dr. Pepper. One sec. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. So, basically starts off in the middle of a kind of neat little uh, action sequence where Superman is uh, rescuing these workers from a uh, what looks to be basically a, a nuclear meltdown, right? And what I kind of like about this is that the factory fire from uh, Superman 3 was kind of... If I'd been writing this issue as a 10-year-old kid, I probably would have tried to follow that factory rescue sequence from Superman 3 as closely as possible, just because I wasn't really let's face it, the sharpest knife in the drawer, as, especially as a kid. I mean, these days, we can argue even about that, but, you know, certainly when I was a kid, I was pretty dumb. And I don't know why, but there's... That would have been kind of my go-to sort of thing as inspiration here. And this is less of a rescue, and it's more like an evacuation. And... Superman, one of the things that I kind of like about him is that, no, he's not exactly a nuclear scientist, but he does have enough of an understanding that he knows basically what he needs to do through this entire sequence, and I love that. But before I get too much further into that, just right here on page one, it kind of sets a little bit of an interesting tone for, I guess, 
like the tone of this story and basically what it's going to be. You know, Superman, even though he's working in what I assume is a is a very brightly lit uh, nuclear laboratory, he's still kind of covered in shadow a little bit. Part of his face is enshrouded in a, in a darkness. And overall, you know, he's just kind of in the shadows, like I say. And that's an appropriate tone for this story, I think, given that, you know, there are a lot of secrets and conspiracies and stuff going on here. And it, it really works, number one, just as badass art right here on page one. But it also works as just giving you a sample, kind of a taste of, I guess, the tone of the story and where things are going. You know, I like it that Ordway is able to establish the tone of all of this literally right on page one. You know, show me another another artist who's capable of doing all of that. So anyway, moving into uh, page two, you know, this is... Uh, we finally get a little bit more of an up... Uh, I, I finally get a little bit more of a, I guess, a, a sense of the tempo of all of this scene, you know? Uh, these people are, like, barking orders at each other. Here you go, doctor. I scanned their, I scanned their suits for any tears, but they're intact. Uh, they took a, a shitload of radiation, and so another doctor says, we'll get them scrubbed thoroughly and their exposure. Superman comes back with, there's about six inches of liquid in there, and it's leaking from a glassed-in holding tank. And then... One of the one of the scientist guys says that tank holds spent fuel from our experiments. We could risk meltdown if we don't get that fluid back in there and and all of that. And it it's basically you know they're just you know firing back, right back at each other you know just back and forth. And you know you can almost kind of hear that emergency siren going off in the background of this scene. And I just love it. Anyway, so Superman uh, zooms back into action. He basically. Uh, cuts off the the leak. He puts the liquid back inside the holding tank, and he's basically got this situation about as much under control as he's capable of getting it. And guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't understand a single damn thing that's being said here. I just understand Superman's got to get the liquid back inside the tank. That's all I know. So anyway, there is this kind of neat little moment though on page three, panel one where Superman just kind of bores a hole through the, that. It looks like it's it's got to be like three or four inch thick glass with his finger. Just kind of bzzz, uh, digs a tunnel through it, uh, digs a hole through it, uh, drops the, uh, 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 drops that, I guess that hose through the glass. And then that basically is going to get the liquid back inside of the holding tank. And then from there... You know, one of the things that I kind of like about comics, really starting in the mid-80s, is there was a little bit more of an effort toward realism, where, take this sequence, for example, where, guys, there's a fucking radiation leak that's going on here, all right? And so, just a person, like a normal human being who walks into this lab without a uh, a hazmat suit, they're going to go full Spock before it's all over. I mean, you're not going to be able to survive this. Now, being as we're talking about Superman here, he is going to survive, but guess what? His body has still absorbed a shit ton of radiation, and so you've got to do something about it. Yeah, it's not going to harm him, but the radiation is still going to be an issue because, you know, how is he not going to infect the entire city now, you know? And so Jerry Ordway thought that out. And so basically you get this sequence where Superman puts on a radiation suit. Again, it's not for his protection because at this point, well, number one, he doesn't need it. But number two, even if he did, it's too late. His body would have already absorbed all that radiation anyway. No, he's putting on the radiation suit so that he can um, he, he can get rid of the radiation. <clears throat> and while he's on his way to wherever it is he's going to go to get rid of the radiation, he's not going to poison anything, is the point. <clears throat> and so, from there, Superman basically tells the doctor that, look, this facility isn't rated for the kind of work that you're doing here. This isn't just... A minor little accident. If I hadn't been here, this could have been a major disaster. So the way that it is right now, 
I'm going to take all of this. I'm going to file a report with the Nuclear Regulatory com uh, Commission. And you need to understand that even your your old boss, your late boss, Lex Luthor, he wouldn't have gotten permission to conduct these types of operations in da 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 the heart of downtown fucking Metropolis. And that's the reveal of this story. Or at least the sequence, you know. This whole nuclear episode that Superman just luckily happened to be able to, to stop. Guys, this happened in the middle of a densely populated major metropolitan area. All right? If that radiation leak had gotten out, the entire city of Metropolis... Well, nobody knows what might have happened, right? What could have happened, right? And guys, there's a reason why dangerous experiments like this are typically conducted in the middle of nowhere. It's precisely so that, God forbid, if there's some kind of an accident or something like that, well, not very many people are going to die, relatively speaking, right? Lex Luthor him fucking self wouldn't have been able to get away with this. You know, he would never have gotten permission to do stuff like this. And in fact, Superman even thinks, thinks about it to himself. He says, he thinks to himself, how many accidents like that happened when Lex uh, was around? No doubt he conducted dangerous work like that, but he wouldn't have been so sloppy as to be caught in the act. And as Superman is musing over all of this to himself, he flies outside of the LexCorp tower wearing a nuclear radiation suit. He basically flies up into outer space, makes a big U-turn, and then zips right back down. And re-entry basically burns his radiation suit off. And what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to go ahead and assume that all of this flying around into outer space and then flying back down to the surface, basically the heat of re-entry is going to burn all or most of the radiation off of Superman such that Simply being around the guy isn't going to give somebody cancer or turn them sterile or turn them blind or whatever else. That, I think, is what we're supposed to infer from all of this. Now, how realistic is this? Well, I don't know, all right? Basically, what we're talking about here is a flying alien who's impervious to all physical harm. So realism kind of went out the window a long time ago, but it's one of those things that, you know what? It works, you know, it, 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 it's got enough fuzzy comic book logic to it or comic book science, I should say. Yeah, sure. I'll buy that. Why not? So getting into uh, page five, basically Mr. Z lands at the airport and basically you have all, I don't even know what you call these people. Some of these are cabbies, but other the, others are private drivers, like private limo drivers, and they're holding up people's last names uh, for basically passengers just coming off of the airplane. And so Mr. Z just picks one at random because it looks like he's probably driving a limo. Somebody holding up the name Perez and says, yeah, I'm Perez. He's using his Jedi mind uh, trick here. I am Perez. And the driver says, you are Perez. I'll take you into the city. And then meanwhile, the real Perez shows up and says, wait a minute. I'm Perez. Wait a minute. And I kind of have to think, you know, it wasn't that long before this that, well, there was a, that there was a George Perez who was working on who'd been working on the Superman books. Now, his run, quote-unquote, didn't really last all that long, but it was supposed to be a full run. He was clearly popular and well-liked among the Superman creators. So it kind of makes you think, you know, was this kind of a shout-out to him? Because we don't really get all that good good of a look at Perez, but the just kind of casual glance we do see, yeah, he looks like maybe what George Perez looked like circa 1990, so who knows? Anyway, whoever he, he, that guy's supposed to, supposed to be, it's not like we see him again, Mr. Z basically gets driven into uh, Metropolis by the driver, and while he's being driven through town, he thinks to himself, how many years since I've been here? 50? 
A hundred? Time loses its meaning after so long. It is good to be here, though, after so many years in Europe. But I probably wouldn't have left Romania had it not been for the quote-unquote popular revolution there. And I'm going to work off of the assumption here that what he's talking about is the overthrowing of Nikolai... I can't even... I can never pronounce this guy's last name. Kukescu. And basically, he'd been, I guess, the ruler of Romania for a couple of of years, maybe a couple of decades, but several years for sure. Then one day, as so often can happen with these sorts of things, the people said, we have had enough of your shit. Uh, They basically chased them into hiding. I say them. Nikolai and his wife chased them into hiding. And they ended up getting captured, arrested, tried, and guys, I shit you not executed and not just what you know just plain old regular executed executed with a fucking machine gun all right what does it take to be a former head of state be deposed uh chased out of the city captured tried convicted and then executed with a fucking machine gun i don't know but those guys apparently managed it so anyway and apparently it's um they are not missed in Romania, even to this day. So uh, it stands to reason that if Mr. Z was a member of that government in some capacity or another, yeah, uh, he probably would have had to make a run for it himself. So, hmm. Anyway, checks into his hotel, and that's pretty much all we see of Mr. Z for the time being. But elsewhere... Jose parts company with Cat Grant for the time being after escorting her to work and kind of angsting over the fact that he really likes Cat, but he doesn't know that he's going to be able to support her in the style to which she's become accustomed. Inasmuch as, well, he's poor. So on a lark, he decides, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to buy a lotto ticket. If I lose, well, what the hey? So, comes out of the store, tucks the ticket away, thinking to himself, man, I'll feel luckier with this in my pocket. Ho, ho, ho. Then he thinks to himself, you know what? Maybe I can get on as a substitute teacher. As he walks down the street, he passes Mr. Z, who, at that very moment, gets accosted by some teenage hooligans, one of whom Mr. Z kills by... I can only assume these are Sith powers that allow you to envision somebody's heart pumping and then basically squeeze the shit out of it in your bare hands as though you're squeezing his actual heart in your bare hands. And when you think about it, I mean, guys, that's a kind of shitty way to die. I mean, you know, I, I mean, is it as bad as getting mowed down with a machine gun? Well, I don't know, but... At least with the machine gun, you're probably not going to feel too much of anything. You know, it's going to be over pretty quick. If somebody squeezes the life out of your heart, I kind of have to assume you're going to stay conscious for all or most of it. So, I don't know. Anyway, he lets the other hooligan live because I guess he's a cruel SOB. And as Mr. Z wanders off, his victim somehow knows who he is. He's Mr. Z... And then he's dead. So, hmm. Anyway. Jose has overheard at least some of this stuff, so he hauls balls back uh, to the front of the convenience store, finds the dead kid just kind of laying there, being dead and stuff, and the other one, that is to say the other assailant, who tried to start trouble with Mr. Z, uh, he's alive and at least... I don't know. He's calm enough, depending upon how you look at it, to sort of describe what it is that that happened. And as Jose tries to get a better understanding of just what the hell happened here, his lotto ticket falls out of his pocket, gets caught by the wind, and blows into Bil- uh, into Bibbo's face. I don't know why I want to say Bilbo. This isn't Lord of the Rings. But anyway, blows into Bibbo's face. And... The most that this lotto ticket really means to Bibbo is, hey, maybe I can get a beer with this. 
Yeah, well, you're going to get a lot more than just one beer. So, anyway. Elsewhere, back at the Daily Planet, we're getting into page 11 here. Perry has this big announcement where he's basically says that my personal problems have affected my per my job performance and that hurts this newspaper. So in light of that, I've decided to take a leave of absence from my duties as managing editor of the Daily Planet. And this causes quite a lot of uh, confusion and muttering and mumbling uh, all across the uh, Daily Planet newsroom. And I don't know, just kind of office chit chat and chatter. It comes out that Perry's basically chosen Sam Foswell as his temporary sort of replacement. And as I said in the summary, guys, shit comes out of that. Now, it's probably a good year or so, year and a half maybe, down the line. But stuff comes out of that, people. This isn't a, a decision that's just kind of made in a vacuum, you know? And I kind of like that, to be honest with you, about, you know, Superman comics and this vintage, that it could be a year, you know, six months or a year, a year and a half, two years, maybe even in some cases where, you know, these ideas or these concepts or these subplots get introduced and they're kind of, they're not wrapped up in a big hurry. They kind of stick around for a while, you know? And I kind of like the fact that we kind of get a, we get a little bit of a of a glimpse in subsequent issues of what exactly the Daily Planet is like without Perry White. And before too long, some others are going to be leaving the, the Planet staff as well. So I just dig this about Superman comics from, from this era, you know? And anyway, so at that moment, Mr. Z makes telepathic contact with Superman. Because as far as he knows, he's reaching out and contacting Superman and he basically says, at long last, we meet again. If that intrigues you at all, you know, blah, 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 come to the museum. And, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to save my comments about Mr. Z and, uh, I guess, his relationship with Superman. Drag off my e-sig. I'm going to save all of that for... A little bit later. Basically, Clark pretty well collapses right there in the middle of the bullpen, and the other staffers get him on a couch, and Lois even feels his forehead says that uh, he's burning up, and that's really all Perry White needs to hear. He sends him home for the day, and then Lois whispers that she's going to swing by his place after work, and Clark uses that as an excuse to switch to Superman and then zoom over to the museum where on page 15 he's shown images of a of a, a derailed train and Superman says, Mr. You've got to be mistaken. That happened during World War II. And um, the the Mr. Uh, Mr. Z's kind of disembodied sort of commentary on all this says, a train full of prisoners headed for labor camps escaped during this massive derailment. What we see is this huge glory shot of this train that's just been derailed, smashed into a thousand pieces, and just what the fuck's going on? It looks like there's some Nazis, uh, you know, wandering around the periphery of this thing, and just what the hell happened, you know? And don't get me wrong, I mean, this looks like the sort of thing that Superman would be capable of doing, but Superman himself says, Guy, this was World War II, all right? There must be some kind of a logical explanation for all of this. You have to be mistaken. Well, there is a logical explanation, and Mr. Z is not mistaken. Superman really did do that. And basically what happened is Superman, in a future story travels back in time and he derailed that train it, it was done on purpose you know and this kind of touches upon what i like about superman and mr z and how they met each other and all of that you know guys you kind of got to figure that if time travel is a thing does that make sense if time travel is in some way or another possible to do, 
it stands to reason that, you know what? You're going to be kind of out of sync with somebody, you know? They're going to have experiences with you about which you know nothing. And then there, there may come a point when that flips. And then you have experiences with them about which they know nothing. And you're not in sync with each other. And that's what happens here. You know, Superman's first meeting with Mr. Z, from Superman's standpoint, this is it. But Superman's first encounter with Mr. Z, from Mr. Z's standpoint, happened back in World War II, but hasn't happened to Superman yet. And I love that, you know? I like that. That to me is just a really original way to do a time travel story and give it that extra layer of coolness, you know? So here, once again, my hat is off to Jerry Ordway for, um, I guess, his originality and thinking about things in such a... And when you think about it, a very logical and very probable way that this type of thing would happen, you know, if time travel were possible. So kudos to Mr. Ordway here. So that's page 15. Getting into page 16... Mr. Z basically gets the drop on Superman, imprisons him inside that gemstone on top of his cane, and he even says, You ought to be flattered, Man of Steel, for in my many years, I've met few like you. Of course, they too wound up within my crystal. So this is a kind of an interesting way of saying that Superman's going to be in good company. And so on page 17... Mr. Z kind of monologues a little bit. He says, truly gifted individuals are rare and their lifespans are so brief. So in order that I may partake of their companionship whenever the fancy strikes, I trap their, their essence within the limbo of the magic gemstone. Imagine discussing physics with Einstein or, or painting with Michelangelo at your leisure. Pity both were denied me, though their contemporaries are represented. And from there, we, we cut to the interior of Mr. Z's magic gemstone. And guys, you want to talk about just a, a wide assortment of people running around here. You've got, well, obviously Superman, but you've also got somebody who looks like they're from Renaissance-era uh, France. You've got a couple of Romans, perhaps uh, Roman senators running around from ancient Rome. Uh, you've got somebody who looks sort of like a, an English monarch. You have what looks to be an American frontier plainswoman. You have what looks like a uh, a revolutionary, or sorry, post-revolutionary war, I don't know, president perhaps, or somebody's got that strange-looking George Washington hat. You've got somebody who looks like they're like a 1940s newspaper salesman. All of these people that are just kind of bouncing around in the middle of nowhere uh, this limbo dimension in which Superman finds himself trapped. And again, I kind of like the fact that it shows that Mr. Z, he's been around for a long time. He's had a very varied life, and he's met all different kinds of people, you know? It's just, I like it. It's a nice touch. All of these different fashions, all of these different types of cultures, all of these different points in history, you know? It just, I like that. It plays for me. So, this one guy who bears a rather striking resemblance to Julius Caesar, but it couldn't possibly be him, but still, he looks a lot like Julius Caesar, says, Z, as you know him, is a collector of souls. Our misfortune has been that he found us much too fascinating to live without, so he trapped us all in here. You haven't told us where you were taken from, though, and that's actually the the second time that he's asked that on page 17 he asked for the first time and then here on page 18 he asks again and superman doesn't he doesn't really answer that question and i don't know why because it's not like it's any kind of great secret to say that hey this is the latter end of the 20th century so you mr roman guy you may have been dead for as long as well, the minimum, I guess, would be, what, like 1,700 years or something like that, or, or 1,400 years, something like that. Possibly even longer than that, but for damn sure, that's probably the minimum. So, anyway, this other guy, uh, he looks, he, he, his name is Ilya Targov, 
He's called the Mad Prophet, but he actually sort of looks a little bit like Rasputin. But here again, we know it can't be Rasputin, but anyway. Basically, he he attacks Superman saying, You are not of Earth. This I sense. Ho ho, comrade. And the Roman dude says, Yeah, he's right about that. There is something different about you. We all sensed it. And Superman says that he's from elsewhere, a distant planet, Krypton. And so I guess the Roman guy is probably the most intelligent person in this crystal because he says, none have created such a stir as the one that just happened, at least not in my time here. And Superman says, another jolt. Is it possible that the stone's power is derived from Earth? And then the Roman guy kind of finishes the thought. Its influence may extend only to beings of the earth. You may hold the key to our freedom. There may be hope. Our bodies are all long dead, but there may be hope for you. Free us. So Superman speaks some Kryptonian gobbledygook. That ends up exploding Mr. Z's gemstone real good. Uh, all of the trapped souls from inside of uh, Mr. Z's gemstone, they all basically depart, I guess, to the afterlife, while Superman has what must be a really fucking weird disembodied, out-of-body, whatever experience. He returns to his body, comes to, he finds Mr. Z dead as Mr. Z collapsed. Like I said in the summer, he collapsed onto a, a, a bayonet from a World War I exhibit. And I'm guessing that went right through the heart. He got, I guess you could say he got Bon jovi And uh, anyway, so he got Bon jovi and ends up getting um, pronounced dead pretty much at the scene. Superman says, you know, I thought he was immortal, but the cop says, well, I'd say you got that one wrong. This guy's deader than the doornail. And that is basically, I guess overlaid dialogue on uh, on uh, page 22, the very last page of this story, where we see uh, Z basically force his way out of the morgue and return to the airport, where he tells the uh, woman behind the counter that his name is George Bailey and he wants to go back to Saudi Arabia. And the, the cashier, for lack of a better way of putting it, she says, wait, George Bailey, the name, like, the guy in that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Mr. Z says, oh yes, wonderful life. Yes, it is. And that's basically the end of it. And like I say, I just really dig this story. It's... <sighs> I like Jerry Ordway as a writer, and God knows as an artist. You know, but, you know, st this and stories like it, there's just so much imagination, so much creativity. You know, the uh, time travel question that we're presented with here not we don't realize it's a time travel riddle that we're working through but it is in fact a time travel riddle like i said it's just such an original way of setting up mr z and superman's rivalry with one another i just really dig it so this to me as far as comics from 1991 is a definite keeper so anyway i think that's pretty much it for me this week now as to next week Basically, what I'm going to be talking about, this is going to be the Uncanny X-Men number 272. But that's going to be the, uh, by the way, that's going to be the uh, continuation of my January 1991 mega series. But that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is the Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of the Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com as well as iTunes. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>